This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's uh, a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London right now. Recording by Matt Saw. Challenges. After the guests had gone, Father threw himself into a chair and gave vent to roars of gargantuan laughter. Not since the death of my mother had I known him to laugh so heartily. I'll wager Dr. Hammerfield was never up against anything like it in his life, he laughed. The courtesies of ecclesiastical controversy. Did you notice how he began like a lamb? Everhard, I mean, and how quickly he became a roaring lion. He has a splendidly disciplined mind. He would have made a good scientist if his energies had been directed that way. I need scarcely say that I was deeply interested in Ernest Everhard. It was not alone what he had said and how he had said it, but it was the man himself. I had never met a man like him. I suppose that was why, in spite of my twenty-four years, I had not married. I liked him. I had to confess it to myself and my like for him was founded on things beyond intellect and argument. 
Regardless of his bulging muscles and prize fighter's throat, he impressed me as an ingenious boy. I felt that under the guise of an intellectual swashbuckler was a delicate and sensitive spirit. I sensed this in ways I knew not, save that they were my woman's intuitions. There was something in that clarion call of his that went to my heart. It still rang in my ears, and I felt that I should like to hear it again, and to see again that glint of laughter in his eyes that belied the impassioned seriousness of his face. And there were further reaches of vague and indeterminate feelings that stirred in me. I almost loved him then, though I am confident, had I never seen him again, that the vague feelings would have passed away, and I should easily have forgotten him. But I was not destined never to see him again. My father's newborn interest in sociology and the dinner parties he gave would not permit. Father was not a sociologist. His marriage with my mother had been very happy, and in the researches of his own science, physics, he had been very happy. But when my mother died, his own work could not fill the emptiness. At first, in a mild way, he had dabbled in philosophy. Then, becoming interested, he had drifted on into economics and sociology. He had a strong sense of justice, and he soon became fired with a passion to redress wrong. It was with gratitude that I hailed these signs of a new interest in life, though I little dreamed what the outcome would be. With the enthusiasm of a boy, he plunged excitedly into these new pursuits, regardless of whither they led him. He had been used always to the laboratory, and so it was that he turned the dining room into a sociological laboratory. Here came to dinner all sorts and conditions of men—scientists, politicians, bankers, merchants, professors, labor leaders, socialists, and anarchists. He stirred them to discussion and analyzed their thoughts of life and society. He had met Ernest shortly prior to the preacher's night, and after the guests were gone I learned how he had met him, passing down a street at night and stopping to listen to a man on a soapbox who was addressing a crowd of working men. The man on the box was Ernest. Not that he was a mere soapbox orator. He stood high in the councils of the Socialist Party, was one of the leaders, and was the acknowledged leader in the philosophy of socialism. But he had a certain clear way of stating the abstruse in simple language, was a born expositor and teacher, and was not above the soapbox as a means of interpreting economics to the working men. My father stopped to listen, became interested, effected a meeting, and, after quite an acquaintance, invited him to the minister's dinner. It was after the dinner that father told me what little he knew about him. He had been born in the working class, though he was a descendant of the old line of Everhards that for over two hundred years had lived in America. Note. The distinction between being native-born and foreign-born was sharp and invidious in those days. At ten years of age he had gone to work in the mills, and later he served his apprenticeship and became a horseshoer. He was self-educated, had taught himself German and French, and at that time was earning a meagre living by translating scientific and philosophical works for a struggling socialist publishing house in Chicago. Also, his earnings were added to by the royalties from the small sales of his own economic and philosophic works. This much I learned of him before I went to bed, and I lay long awake listening in memory to the sound of his voice. I grew frightened at my thoughts. He was so unlike the men of my own class, so alien and so strong. His masterfulness delighted me and terrified me, for my fancies wantonly roved until I found myself considering him as a lover, as a husband. I had always heard that the strength of men was an irresistible attraction to women, but he was too strong. No, no, I cried out. It is impossible, absurd. And on the morrow, I awoke to find in myself a longing to see him again. I wanted to see him mastering men in discussion, the war note in his voice. To see him, in all his certitude and strength, shattering their complacency, shaking them out of their ruts of thinking. 
What if he did swashbuckle? To use his own phrase, it worked. It produced effects. And besides, his swashbuckling was a fine thing to see. It stirred one like the onset of battle. Several days passed during which I read Ernest's books borrowed from my father. His written word was, as his spoken word, clear and convincing. It was its absolute simplicity that convinced even while one continued to doubt. He had the gift of lucidity. He was the perfect expositor. Yet, in spite of his style, there was much that I did not like. He laid too great a stress on what he called the class struggle, the antagonism between labor and capital, the conflict of interest. Father reported with glee Dr. Hammerfield's judgment of Ernest, which was to the effect that he was an insolent young puppy made bumptious by little and very inadequate learning. Also, Dr. Hammerfield declined to meet Ernest again. But Bishop Morehouse turned out to have become interested in Ernest and was anxious for another meeting. A strong young man, he said, and very much alive, very much alive, but he is too sure, too sure. Ernest came one afternoon with father. The bishop had already arrived, and we were having tea on the veranda. Ernest's continued presence in Berkeley, by the way, was accounted for by the fact that he was taking special courses in biology at the university, and also that he was hard at work on a new book entitled Philosophy and Revolution. Note. This book continued to be secretly printed throughout the three centuries of the Iron Heel. There are several copies of various editions in the National Library of Ardis. The veranda seemed suddenly to have become small when Ernest arrived. Not that he was so very large, he stood only five feet nine inches, but that he seemed to radiate an atmosphere of largeness. As he stopped to meet me, he betrayed a certain slight awkwardness that was strangely at variance with his bold-looking eyes and his firm, sure hand that clasped for a moment in greeting. And in that moment his eyes were just as steady and sure. There seemed a question in them this time, and as before he looked at me over long. "'I've been reading your working-class philosophy,' I said, and his eyes lighted in a pleased way. "'Of course,' he answered. "'You took into consideration the audience to which it was addressed.' "'I did, and it is because I did that I have a quarrel with you,' I challenged. "'I, too, have a quarrel with you, Mr. Everhard,' Bishop Morehouse said. Ernest shrugged his shoulders whimsically and accepted a cup of tea. The bishop bowed and gave me precedence. "'You foment class hatred.' I said, I consider it wrong and criminal to appeal to all that is narrow and brutal in the working class. Class hatred is antisocial, and it seems to me anti-socialistic. Not guilty, he answered. Class hatred is neither in the text nor in the spirit of anything I have ever written. Ah! Oh, I cried reproachfully, and reached for his book and opened it. He sipped his tea and smiled at me while I ran over the pages. Page 132, I read aloud. The class struggle, therefore, presents itself in the present stage of social development between the wage-paying and the wage-paid classes. I looked at him triumphantly. No mention there of class hatred, he smiled back. But, I answered, you say class struggle. A different thing from class hatred, he replied. And believe me, we foment no hatred. We say that the class struggle is a law of social development. We are not responsible for it. We do not make the class struggle, we merely explain it, as Newton explained gravitation. We explain the nature of the conflict of interest that produces the class struggle. But there should be no conflict of interest, I cried. I agree with you heartily, he answered. That is what we socialists are trying to bring about, the abolition of the conflict of interest. Pardon me, let me read an extract. He took his book and turned back several pages. 
Page 126. The cycle of class struggles which began with the dissolution of rude tribal communism and the rise of private property will end with the passing of private property in the means of social existence. But I disagree with you, the bishop interposed, his pale ascetic face betraying by a faint glow the intensity of his feelings. Your premise is wrong. There is no such thing as a conflict of interest between labor and capital, or rather there ought not to be. Thank you, Ernest said gravely. By that last statement, you have given me back my premise. But why should there be a conflict? The bishop demanded warmly. Ernest shrugged his shoulders. Because we are so made, I guess. But we are not so made, cried the other. Are you discussing the ideal man? Ernest asked. Unselfish and godlike and so few in numbers as to be practically non-existent? Or are you discussing the common and ordinary average man? The common and ordinary man was the answer. Who is weak and fallible, prone to error? Bishop Morehouse nodded. And petty and selfish? Again he nodded. Watch out, Ernest warned. I said selfish. Well, the average man is selfish, the bishop affirmed valiantly. Once all he can get, true but deplorable. Then I've got you. Ernest's jaw snapped like a trap. Let me show you. Here is a man who works on the street railways. He couldn't work if it weren't for capital, the bishop interrupted. True, and you will grant that capital would perish if there were no labor to earn the dividends. The bishop was silent. Won't you? Ernest insisted. The bishop nodded. Then our statements cancel each other, Ernest said in a matter-of-fact tone. And we are where we were. Now to begin again. The working men on the street railway furnish the labor. The stockholders furnish the capital. By the joint effort of the working men and the capital, money is earned. Note. In those days, groups of predatory individuals controlled all the means of transportation, and for the use of same levied toll upon the public. Very good, the bishop interposed, and there is no reason that the division should not be amicable. You have already forgotten what we had agreed upon, Ernest replied. We agreed that the average man is selfish. He is the man that is. You have gone up in the air and are arranging a division between the kind of men that ought to be, but are not. But to return to the earth, the working man, being selfish, wants all he can get in the division. The capitalist, being selfish, wants all he can get in the division. When there is only so much of the same thing, and when two men want all they can get out of the same thing, there is a conflict of interest between labor and capital. And it is an irreconcilable conflict. As long as working men and capitalists exist, they will continue to quarrel over the division. If you were in San Francisco this afternoon, you'd have to walk. There isn't a streetcar running. Another strike? The bishop queried with alarm. Note. These quarrels were very common in those irrational and anarchic times. Sometimes the laborers refused to work. Sometimes the capitalists refused to let the laborers work. In the violence and turbulence of such disagreements, much property was destroyed and many lives lost. All this is inconceivable to us as inconceivable as another custom of that time, namely the habit the men of the lower classes had of breaking the furniture when they quarreled with their wives. Yes, they're quarreling over the division of the earnings of the street railways. Bishop Morehouse became excited. It is wrong, he cried. It is so short-sighted on the part of the working men. How can they hope to keep our sympathy? When we are compelled to walk, Ernest said slyly. But Bishop Morehouse ignored him and went on. Their outlook is too narrow. Men should be men, not brutes. There will be violence and murder now and sorrowing widows and orphans. 
Capital and labor should be friends. They should work hand in hand to their mutual benefit. Ah, now you are up in the air again, Ernest remarked dryly. Come back to earth. Remember, we agreed that the average man is selfish. But he ought not to be, the bishop cried. And there I agree with you, was Ernest's rejoinder. He ought not to be selfish, but he will continue to be selfish as long as he lives in a social system that is based on pig ethics. The bishop was aghast, and my father chuckled. Yes, pig ethics, Ernest went on remorselessly. That is the meaning of the capitalist system. And that is what your church is standing for, what you are preaching for every time you get up in the pulpit. Pig ethics. There is no other name for it. Bishop Morehouse turned appealingly to my father, but he laughed and nodded his head. I'm afraid Mr. Everhart is right, he said. Laissez-faire, the let-alone policy of each for himself and devil take the hindmost. As Mr. Everhart said the other night, the function you churchmen perform is to maintain the established order of society, and society is established on that foundation. But that is not the teaching of Christ, cried the bishop. The church is not teaching Christ these days, Ernest put in quickly. That is why the working men will have nothing to do with the church. The church condones the frightful brutality and savagery with which the capitalist class treats the working class. The church does not condone it, the bishop objected. The church does not protest against it. Ernest replied, and in so far as the church does not protest, it condones. For remember, the church is supported by the capitalist class. I had not looked at it in that light, the bishop said naively. You must be wrong. I know that there is much that is sad and wicked in this world. I know that the church has lost the, what you call the proletariat. Note. Proletariat. Derived originally from the Latin proletari the name given in the census of Servius Tullius to those who were of value to the state only as the rearers of offspring, proles. In other words, they were of no importance either for wealth or position or exceptional ability. "'You never had the proletariat,' Ernest cried. "'The proletariat has grown up outside the church and without the church.' "'I do not follow you,' the bishop said faintly. Then let me explain. With the introduction of machinery and the factory system in the latter part of the 18th century, the great mass of the working people was separated from the land. The old system of labor was broken down. The working people were driven from their villages and herded in factory towns. The mothers and children were put to work at the new machines. Family life ceased. The conditions were frightful. It is a tale of blood. I know, I know. Bishop Morehouse interrupted with an agonized expression on his face. It was terrible, but it occurred a century and a half ago. And there, a century and a half ago, originated the modern proletariat, Ernest continued, and the church ignored it. While a slaughterhouse was made of the nation by the capitalists, the church was dumb. It did not protest, as today it does not protest. As Austin Lewis says, speaking of that time, those to whom the command, Feed my lambs, had been given, saw those lambs sold into slavery and worked to death without a protest. The church was dumb then, and before I go on, I want you either flatly to agree with me or flatly to disagree with me. Was the church dumb then? Note. Austin Lewis was candidate for governor of California on the socialist ticket in the fall election of 1906 Christian era. An Englishman by birth, a writer of many books on political economy and philosophy, and one of the socialist leaders of the Times. Note, there is no more horrible page in history than the treatment of the child and women slaves in the English factories in the latter half of the 18th century of the Christian era. In such industrial hells arose some of the proudest fortunes of that day. 
Bishop Morehouse hesitated. Like Dr. Hammerfield, he was unused to this fierce infighting, as Ernest called it. The history of the 18th century is written, Ernest prompted. If the church was not dumb, it will be found not dumb in the books. I am afraid the church was dumb, the bishop confessed. And the church is dumb today. There I disagree, said the bishop. Ernest paused, looking at him searchingly, and accepted the challenge. All right, he said. Let us see. In Chicago, there are women who toil all the week for ninety cents. Has the church protested? This is news to me, was the answer. Ninety cents per week, it's horrible. Has the church protested? Ernest insisted. The church does not know. The bishop was struggling hard. Yet the command to the church was, Feed my lambs, Ernest sneered. And then the next moment, Pardon my sneer, Bishop, but can you wonder that we lose patience with you? When have you protested to your capitalistic congregations at the working of children in the southern cotton mills? Children, six and seven years of age, working every night at twelve-hour shifts. They never see the blessed sunshine. They die like flies. The dividends are paid out of their blood, and out of the dividends magnificent churches are builded in New England, wherein your kind preaches pleasant platitudes to the sleek, full-bellied recipients of those dividends. Note. Everhard might have drawn a better illustration from the Southern Church's outspoken defense of chattel slavery prior to what is known as the War of the Rebellion. Several such illustrations, culled from the documents of the Times, are here appended. In 1835 A.D., the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church resolved that "...slavery is recognized in both the Old and the New Testaments, and is not condemned by the authority of God." The Charleston Baptist Association issued the following in an address in 1835 A.D. "...the right of masters to dispose of the time of their slaves has been distinctly recognized by the Creator of all things, who is surely at liberty to vest the right of property over any object whomsoever he pleases." The Reverend E.D. Simon, Doctor of Divinity and Professor in the Randolph Masson Methodist College of Virginia, wrote, Extracts from Holy Writ unequivocally assert the right of property and slaves, together with the usual incidents to that right. The right to buy and sell is clearly stated. Upon the whole, then, whether we consult the Jewish policy instituted by God himself, or the uniform opinion and practice of mankind in all ages, or the injunctions of the New Testament and the moral law, we are brought to the conclusion that slavery is not immoral. Having established the point that the first African slaves were legally brought into bondage, the right to detain their children in bondage follows as an indispensable consequence. Thus we see that the slavery that exists in America was founded in right. It is not at all remarkable that this same note should have been struck by the church a generation or so later in relation to the defense of capitalistic property. In the great museum at Asgard, there is a book entitled Essays in Application, written by Henry Van Dyke. The book was published in 1905 of the Christian era. From what we can make out, Van Dyke must have been a churchman. The book is a good example of what Everhard would have called bourgeois thinking. Note the similarity between the utterance of the Charleston Baptist Association quoted above and the following utterance of Van Dyke seventy years later. The Bible teaches that God owns the world. He distributes to every man according to his own good pleasure, conformably to general laws. I did not know, the bishop murmured faintly. His face was pale, and he seemed suffering from nausea. Then you have not protested. The bishop shook his head. Then the church is dumb today, as it was in the eighteenth century? The bishop was silent, and for once Ernest forbore to press the point. 
and do not forget, whenever a churchman does protest, that he is discharged. I hardly think that is fair, was the objection. Will you protest? Ernest demanded. Show me evils such as you mention in our own community, and I will protest. I'll show you, Ernest said quietly. I am at your disposal. I will take you on a journey through hell. And I shall protest. The bishop strained himself in his chair, and over his gentle face spread the harshness of the warrior. The church shall not be dumb. You will be discharged, was the warning. I shall prove the contrary, was the retort. I shall prove, if what you say is so, that the church has erred through ignorance. And, furthermore, I hold that whatever is horrible industrial society is due to the ignorance of the capitalist class. It will mend all that is wrong as soon as it receives the message, and this message it shall be the duty of the church to deliver. Ernest laughed. He laughed brutally, and I was driven to the bishop's defense. Remember, I said, you see but one side of the shield. There is much good in us, though you give us credit for no good at all. Bishop Morehouse is right. The industrial wrong, terrible as you say it is, is due to ignorance. The divisions of society have become too widely separated. The wild Indian is not so brutal and savage as the capitalist class, he answered. And in that moment I hated him. You do not know us, I answered. We are not brutal and savage. Prove it, he challenged. How can I prove it to you? I was growing angry. He shook his head. I do not ask you to prove it to me. I ask you to prove it to yourself. I know, I said. You know nothing, was his rude reply. There, there, children, father said soothingly. I don't care, I began indignantly, but Ernest interrupted. I understand you have money, or your father has, which is the same thing, money invested in the Sierra Mills. What has that to do with it? I cried. Nothing much, he began slowly, except that the gown you wear is stained with blood. The food you eat is a bloody stew. The blood of little children and of strong men is dripping from your very roof beams. I can close my eyes now and hear it drip, drop, drip, drop, all about me. And suiting the action to the words, he closed his eyes and leaned back in his chair. I burst into tears of mortification and hurt vanity. I'd never been so brutally treated in my life. Both the bishop and my father were embarrassed and perturbed. They tried to lead the conversation away into easier channels, but Ernest opened his eyes, looked at me, and waved them aside. His mouth was stern and his eyes too, and in the latter there was no glint of laughter. What he was about to say, what terrible castigation he was going to give me, I never knew. For at that moment a man, passing along the sidewalk, stopped and glanced in at us, he was a large man, poorly dressed, and on his back was a great load of rattan and bamboo stands, chairs, and screens. He looked at the house as if debating whether or not he should come in and try to sell some of his wares. That man's name is Jackson, Ernest said. With that strong body of his, he should be at work and not peddling, I answered curtly. Note, in that day there were many thousands of these poor merchants called peddlers. They carried their whole stock in trade from door to door. It was a most wasteful expenditure of energy. Distribution was as confused and irrational as the whole general system of society. Notice the sleeve of his left arm, Ernest said gently. I looked and saw that the sleeve was empty. 
It was some of the blood from that arm that I heard dripping from your roof beams, Ernest said with continued gentleness. He lost his arm in the Sierra Mills, and like a broken-down horse, you turned him out on the highway to die. When I say you, I mean the superintendent and the officials that you and the other stockholders pay to manage the mills for you. It was an accident. It was caused by his trying to save the company a few dollars. The toothed drum of the picker caught his arm. He might have let the small flint that he saw in the teeth go through. It would have smashed out a double row of spikes, but he reached for the flint and his arm was picked and clawed to shreds from the fingertips to the shoulder. It was at night. The mills were working overtime. They paid a fat dividend that quarter. Jackson had been working many hours and his muscles had lost their resiliency and snap. They made his movements a bit slow. That was why the machine caught him. He had a wife and three children. And what did the company do for him? I asked. Nothing. Oh, yes, they did do something. They successfully fought the damage suit he brought when he came out of hospital. The company employs very efficient lawyers, you know. You have not told the whole story, I said with conviction, or else you do not know the whole story. Maybe the man was insolent. Insolent? Ha, ha. His laughter was Mephistophelian. Great God! Insolent! And with his arm chewed off! Nevertheless, he was a meek and lowly servant, and there is no record of his having been insolent. But the courts, I urged. The case would not have been decided against him had there been no more to the affair than you have mentioned. Colonel Ingram is leading counsel for the company. He is a shrewd lawyer. Ernest looked at me intently for a moment and then went on. I'll tell you what you do, Miss Cunningham. You investigate Jackson's case. I had already determined to, I said coldly. All right, he beamed good-naturedly, and I'll tell you where to find him. But I tremble for you when I think of all you are to prove by Jackson's arm. And so it came about that both the bishop and I accepted Ernest's challenges. They went away together, leaving me smarting with a sense of injustice that had been done to me in my class. The man was a beast. I hated him, then, and consoled myself with the thought that his behavior was what was to be expected from a man of the working class. End of chapter 2 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, mattsaw.org Recording by Matt Saw Jackson's Arm Little did I dream the fateful part Jackson's arm was to play in my life. Jackson himself did not impress me when I hunted him out. I found him in a crazy, ramshackle house down near the bay on the edge of the marsh. Pools of stagnant water stood around the house, their surfaces covered with a green and putrid-looking scum, while the stench that arose from them was intolerable. Note. Ramshackle. An adjective descriptive of ruined and dilapidated houses in which great numbers of the working people found shelter in those days. They invariably paid rent, and, considering the value of such houses, enormous rent to the landlords. I found Jackson the meek and lowly man he had been described. He was making some sort of rattan work, and he toiled on stolidly while I talked with him. But in spite of his meekness and lowliness, I fancied I caught the first note of a nascent bitterness in him when he said, they might have given me a job as watchman anyway. Note. In those days, thievery was incredibly prevalent. Everybody stole property from everybody else. The lords of society stole legally or else legalized their stealing, while the poorer classes stole illegally. Nothing was safe unless guarded, 
Enormous numbers of men were employed as watchmen to protect property. The houses of the well-to-do were a combination of safe deposit vault and fortress. The appropriation of the personal belongings of others by our own children of today is looked upon as a rudimentary survival of the theft characteristic that in those early times was universal. I got little out of him. He struck me as stupid, and yet the deafness with which he worked with his one hand seemed to belie his stupidity. This suggested an idea to me. How did you happen to get your arm caught in the machine? I asked. He looked at me in a slow and pondering way and shook his head. I don't know. It just happened. Carelessness? I prompted. No, he answered. I ain't for calling it that. I was working overtime, and I guess I was tired out some. I worked seventeen years in them mills, and I've took notice that most of the accidents happens just before whistleblow. I'm willing to bet that more accidents happens in the hour before whistleblow than in all the rest of the day. A man ain't so quick after working steady for hours. I've seen too many of them cut up and gouged and chored not to know. Note. The laborers were called to work and dismissed by savage, screaming, nerve-wracking steam whistles. Many of them? I queried. Hundreds and hundreds, and children, too. With the exception of the terrible details, Jackson's story of his accident was the same as that I had already heard. When I asked him if he had broken some rule of working the machinery, he shook his head. I chucked off the belt with my right hand, he said, and made a reach for the flint with my left. I didn't stop to see if the belt was off. I thought my right hand had done it, only it didn't. I reached quick, and the belt wasn't all the way off, and then my arm was chewed off. It must have been painful, I said sympathetically. The crunching of the bones wasn't nice, was his answer. His mind was rather hazy concerning the damage suit. Only one thing was clear to him, and that was that he had not got any damages. He had a feeling that the testimony of the foremen and the superintendent had brought about the adverse decision of the court. Their testimony, as he put it, wasn't what it ought to have been. And to them, I resolved to go. One thing was plain. Jackson's situation was wretched. His wife was in ill health, and he was unable to earn, by his rattan work and peddling, sufficient food for the family. He was back in his rent, and the oldest boy, a lad of eleven, had started to work in the mills. They might have given me that watchman's job, were his last words as I went away. By the time I had seen the lawyer who had handled Jackson's case, and the two foremen and the superintendent at the mills who had testified, I began to feel that there was something after all in Ernest's contention. He was a weak and insufficient-looking man, the lawyer, and at sight of him I did not wonder that Jackson's case had been lost. My first thought was that it had served Jackson right for getting such a lawyer. But the next moment, two of Ernest's statements came flashing into my consciousness. The company employs very efficient lawyers. And Colonel Ingram is a shrewd lawyer. I did some rapid thinking. It dawned upon me that of course the company could afford finer legal talent than could a working man like Jackson. But this was merely a minor detail. There was some very good reason I was sure why Jackson's case had gone against him. Why did you lose the case? I asked. The lawyer was perplexed and worried for a moment, and I found it in my heart to pity the wretched little creature. Then he began to whine. I do believe his whine was congenital. He was a man beaten at birth. He whined about the testimony. The witnesses had given only the evidence that helped the other side. Not one word could he get out of them that would have helped Jackson. They knew which side their bread was buttered on. Jackson was a fool. He had been browbeaten and confused by Colonel Ingram. Colonel Ingram was brilliant at cross-examination. He had made Jackson answer damaging questions. 
How could his answers be damaging if he had the right on his side? I demanded. What's right got to do with it? He demanded back. You see all those books? He moved his hand over the array of volumes on the walls of his tiny office. All my reading and studying of them has taught me that law is one thing and right is another thing. Ask any lawyer. You go to Sunday school to learn what is right, but you go to those books to learn law. Do you mean to tell me that Jackson had the right on his side and yet was beaten? I queried tentatively. Do you mean to tell me that there is no justice in Judge Caldwell's court? The little lawyer glared at me a moment, and then the belligerence faded out of his face. I hadn't a fair chance, he began whining again. They made a fool out of Jackson and out of me, too. What chance had I? Colonel Ingram is a great lawyer. If he wasn't great, would he have charge of the law business of the Sierra Mills, of the Erston Land Syndicate, of the Berkeley Consolidated, of the Oakland, San Leandro, and Pleasanton Electric? He's a corporation lawyer, and corporation lawyers are not paid for being fools. Note. The function of the corporation lawyer was to serve, by corrupt methods, the money-grabbing propensities of the corporations. It is on record that Theodore Roosevelt, at that time President of the United States, said in 1905 A.D. in his address at Harvard Commencement, We all know that, as things actually are, many of the most influential and most highly remunerated members of the bar, in every center of wealth, make it their special task to work out bold and ingenious schemes by which their wealthy clients, individual or corporate, can evade the laws which are made to regulate, in the interests of the public, the uses of great wealth. What do you think the Sierra Mills alone give him $20,000 a year for? Because he's worth $20,000 a year to them, that's what for. I'm not worth that much. If I was, I wouldn't be on the outside, starving and taking cases like Jackson's. What do you think I'd have got if I'd won Jackson's case? You'd have robbed him, most probably, I answered. Of course I would, he cried angrily. I've got to live, haven't I? Note. A typical illustration of the internecine strife that permeated all society. Men preyed upon one another like ravening wolves. The big wolves ate the little wolves, and in the social pack Jackson was one of the least of the little wolves. He has a wife and children, I chided. So have I a wife and children, he retorted, and there's not a soul in this world except myself that cares whether they starve or not. His face suddenly softened, and he opened his watch and showed me a small photograph of a woman and two little girls pasted inside the case. There they are. Look at them. We've had a hard time. A hard time. I had hoped to send them away to the country if I'd won Jackson's case. They're not healthy here, but I can't afford to send them away. When I started to leave, he dropped back into his whine. I hadn't the ghost of a chance. Colonel Ingram and Judge Coldwell are pretty friendly. I'm not saying that if I'd got the right kind of testimony out of their witnesses on cross-examination, that friendship would have decided the case. And yet I must say that Judge Caldwell did a whole lot to prevent my getting that very testimony. Why, Judge Caldwell and Colonel Ingram belong to the same lodge and the same club. They live in the same neighborhood, one I can't afford. And their wives are always in and out of each other's houses. They're always having whist parties and such things back and forth. And yet you think Jackson had the right of it? I asked, pausing for the moment on the threshold. I don't think I know it, was his answer. And at first I thought he had some show, too, but I didn't tell my wife. I didn't want to disappoint her. She had her heart set on a trip to the country, hard enough as it was. Why did you not call attention to the fact that Jackson was trying to save the machinery from being injured? I asked Peter Donnelly, one of the four men who had testified at the trial. He pondered a long time before replying. Then he cast an anxious look about him and said, 
Because I've a good wife and three of the sweetest children ye ever laid eyes on. That's why. I do not understand, I said. In other words, because it wouldn't have been healthy, he answered. You mean... I began. But he interrupted passionately. I mean what I said. It's long years I've worked in the mills. I began as a little lad on the spindles. I worked up ever since. It's by hard work I got to my present exalted position. I'm a foreman, if you please. And I doubt me if there's a man in the mills that put out a hand to drag me from drowning. I used to belong to the union, but I've stayed by the company through two strikes. They called me Scab. There's not a man among them today to take a drink with me if I asked him. Do you see the scars on my head where I was struck with flying bricks? There ain't a child at the spindles but what would curse me name. Me only friend is the company. It's not me duty, but me bread and butter and the life of me children to stand by the mills. That's why. Was Jackson to blame? I asked. He should have got the damages. He was a good worker and never made trouble. Then you were not at liberty to tell the whole truth, as you had sworn to do. He shook his head. The truth? The whole truth and nothing but the truth? I said solemnly. Again, his face became impassioned and he lifted it, not to me, but to heaven. I'd let my soul and body burn in everlasting hell for them children of mine, was his answer. Henry Dallas, the superintendent, was a vulpine-faced creature who regarded me insolently and refused to talk. Not a word could I get from him concerning the trial and his testimony. But with the other foreman I had better luck. James Smith was a hard-faced man, and my heart sank as I encountered him. He, too, gave me the impression that he was not a free agent. As we talked, I began to see that he was mentally superior to the average of his kind. He agreed with Peter Donnelly that Jackson should have got damages, and he went farther and called the action heartless and cold-blooded that had turned the worker adrift after he had been made helpless by the accident. Also, he explained that there were many accidents in the mills, and that the company's policy was to fight to the bitter end all consequent damage suits. It means hundreds of thousands a year to the stockholders, he said. And as he spoke, I remembered the last dividend that had been paid my father, and the pretty gown for me and the books for him that had been bought out of that dividend. I remembered Ernest's charge that my gown was stained with blood, and my flesh began to crawl underneath my garments. When you testified at the trial, you didn't point out that Jackson received his accident through trying to save the machinery from damage, I said. No, I did not, was the answer and his mouth set bitterly. I testified to the effect that Jackson injured himself by neglect and carelessness, and that the company was not in any way to blame or liable. Was it carelessness? I asked. Call it that, or anything you want to call it. The fact is, a man gets tired after he's been working for hours. I was becoming interested in the man. He certainly was of a superior kind. You are better educated than most working men, I said. I went through high school, he replied. I worked my way through doing janitor work. I wanted to go through the university, but my father died and I came to work in the mills. I wanted to become a naturalist, he explained shyly, as though confessing a weakness. I love animals, but I came to work in the mills. When I was promoted to foreman, I got married. Then the family came, and, well, I wasn't my own boss anymore. What do you mean by that? I asked. I was explaining why I testified at the trial the way I did, why I followed instructions. Whose instructions? Colonel Ingram. He outlined the evidence I was to give. And it lost Jackson's case for him. He nodded, and the blood began to rise darkly in his face. 
And Jackson had a wife and two children dependent on him. I know, he said quietly, though his face was growing darker. Tell me, I went on, was it easy to make yourself over from what you were, say in high school, to the man you must have become to do such a thing at the trial? The suddenness of his outburst startled and frightened me. He ripped out a savage oath and clenched his fists as though about to strike me. Note. It is interesting to note the virilities of language that were common speech in that day, as indicative of the life, red of claw and fang, that was then lived. References here made, of course, not to the oath of Smith, but to the verb ripped used by Avis Everhard. "'I beg your pardon,' he said the next moment. "'No, it was not easy. And now I guess you can go away. You've got all you wanted out of me, but let me tell you this before you go. It won't do you any good to repeat anything I've said. I'll deny it, and there are no witnesses. I'll deny every word of it. And if I have to, I'll do it under oath on the witness stand.' After my interview with Smith, I went to my father's office in the chemistry building and there encountered Ernest. It was quite unexpected, but he met me with his bold eyes and firm handclasp, and with that curious blend of his awkwardness and ease. It was as though our last stormy meeting was forgotten, but I was not in the mood to have it forgotten. "'I have been looking up Jackson's case,' I said abruptly. He was all interested attention, and waited for me to go on, though I could see in his eyes the certitude that my convictions had been shaken. He seems to have been badly treated, I confessed. I... I think some of his blood is dripping from our roof beams. Of course, he answered. If Jackson and all his fellows were treated mercifully, the dividends would not be so large. I shall never be able to take pleasure in pretty cows again, I added. I felt humble and contrite, and was aware of a sweet feeling that Ernest was a sort of father-confessor. Then, as ever after, his strength appealed to me. It seemed to radiate a promise of peace and protection. Nor will you be able to take pleasure in sackcloth, he said gravely. There are the jute mills, you know, and the same thing goes on there. It goes on everywhere. Our boasted civilization is based upon blood, soaked in blood, and neither you nor I nor any of us can escape the scarlet stain. The men you talked with, who were they? I told him all that had taken place. And not one of them was a free agent, he said. They were all tied to the merciless industrial machine, and the pathos of it and the tragedy is that they are tied by their heartstrings, their children, always the young life that is their instinct to protect. This instinct is stronger than any ethic they possess. My father, he lied, he stole, he did all sorts of dishonorable things to put bread into my mouth and into the mouths of my brothers and sisters. He was a slave to the industrial machine, and it stamped his life out, worked him to death. But you, I interjected, you are surely a free agent. Not wholly, he replied. I am not tied by my heartstrings. I am often thankful that I have no children, and I dearly love children. Yet if I married, I should not dare to have any. That surely is bad doctrine, I cried. I know it is, he said sadly. But it is expedient doctrine. I'm a revolutionist, and it is a perilous vocation. I laughed incredulously. If I tried to enter your father's house at night to steal his dividends from the Sierra Mills, what would he do? He sleeps with a revolver on the stand by the bed, I answered. He would most probably shoot you. And if I and a few others should lead a million and a half men into the houses of all the well-to-do, there would be a great deal of shooting, wouldn't there? Note. 
This reference is to the socialist vote cast in the United States in 1910. The rise of this vote clearly indicates the swift growth of the party of revolution. Its voting strength in the United States in 1888 was 2,068. In 1902, 127,713. In 1904, 435,040. In 1908, 1,108,427. And in 1910, 1,688,211. Yes, but you're not going to do that, I objected. It is precisely what I'm doing. And we intend to take not the mere wealth in the houses, but all the sources of that wealth, all the mines and railroads and factories and banks and stores. That is the revolution. It is truly perilous. There will be more shooting, I'm afraid, than even I dream of. But, as I was saying, no one today is a free agent. We are all caught up in the wheels and cogs of the industrial machine. You found that you were, and that the men you talked with were. Talk with more of them. Go and see Colonel Ingram. Look up the reporters that kept Jackson's case out of the papers and the editors that run the papers. You will find them all slaves of the machine. A little later in our conversation, I asked him a simple little question about the liability of working men to accidents and received a statistical lecture in return. It is all in the books, he said. The figures have been gathered and it has been proved conclusively that accidents rarely occur in the first hours of the morning work, but that they increase rapidly in the succeeding hours as the workers grow tired and slower in both their muscular and mental processes. Why, do you know that your father has three times as many chances for safety of life and limb than has a working man? He has. The insurance companies know. Note. In the terrible wolf struggle of those centuries, no man was permanently safe, no matter how much wealth he amassed. Out of fear for the welfare of their families, men devised the scheme of insurance. To us, in this intelligent age, such a device is laughably absurd and primitive. But in that age, insurance was a very serious matter. The amusing part of it is that the funds of the insurance companies were frequently plundered and wasted by the very officials who were entrusted with the management of them. They will charge him $4.20 a year on a $1,000 accident policy, and for the same policy they will charge a laborer $15. And you? I asked. And in the moment of asking, I was aware of a solicitude that was something more than slight. Oh. As a revolutionist, I have about eight chances to the working man's one of being injured or killed, he answered carelessly. The insurance companies charge the highly trained chemists that handle explosives eight times what they charge the working men. I don't think they'd insure me at all. Why did you ask? My eyes fluttered, and I could feel the blood warm in my face. It was not that he had caught me in my solicitude, but that I had caught myself and in his presence. Just then my father came in and began making preparations to depart with me. Ernest returned some books he had borrowed and went away first. But just as he was going, he turned and said, "'Oh, by the way, while you are ruining your own peace of mind and I'm ruining the bishops, you'd better look up Mrs. Wixon and Mrs. Pertonwaith. Their husbands, you know, are the two principal stockholders in the mills. Like all the rest of humanity, those two women are tied to the machine, but they are so tied that they sit on top of it.'" End of chapter 3 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal Matsor.org